Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. If there is any point in the Gospel of John that deserves a mic drop, it is probably verse 58 of our reading this morning. Jesus' declaration about himself that I just began with is incredibly bold, even inflammatory, both in his own time and in our contemporary moment. It takes incredible chutzpah to say such a thing. You can tell because immediately Jesus has to hide himself. Jesus' statement is this climactic moment of this long exchange that we've been following these past few weeks in John 8. And this dialogue even builds on conversations we've seen Jesus having in previous chapters, all culminating in this remarkable, bold, audacious statement. Last week, our guest preacher, Joe Ho, concluded his exploration about identity and the middle section of John 8 with this basic exhortation, cling to Jesus, found yourself hid in him. This morning, as we move through the the final section of the chapter toward Jesus' mic drop moment, I'd like to build on that exhortation with a consideration of how it is that we cling to Jesus and why it is that he is able to deal with our most pressing problems, the problems of sin and captivity that Joe identified last Sunday. My plan this morning as we move through the passage is to address these questions, how and why, by grouping our thinking around three headings. First, Jesus, our Samaritan. Second, standing on guard. And third, across the great divide. Jesus, our Samaritan, standing on guard across the great divide. So first, Jesus, our Samaritan. In many arguments, there comes that moment when logic and persuasion have failed, and you have to jump to ad hominem, name-calling. For those Jews engaged with Jesus in John 8, that moment comes in verse 48. Exhausted, perhaps feeling cornered, they answer Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Nothing like a little casual racism and literal demonization to win the day. But considering some of the charges that Jesus has leveled against them, perhaps we can understand their feelings, their sense of being trapped. But what I want to focus on, and indeed interpreters in Christian history have focused on, is Jesus' response in verse 49, and specifically its incomplete nature. I am not possessed by a demon, Jesus says, leaving the accusation of Samaritan background totally unanswered. Now, to undercut the heading that we're using for this first section, Jesus was not, in fact, a Samaritan. And the declaration that he was is rooted in this animosity the Jews and Samaritans shared in the first century, thinking each other's lineage was suspect, thinking each other was outside of God's favor in some way by virtue of their birth. But what has stood out to readers of this passage for centuries is that Jesus does not clarify his own heritage. He doesn't say, actually, I am Jewish, or recite his place in the lineage of King David. And it has been suggested that Jesus does not clarify this because he is, in fact, for all people. The way that his mission is a blessing to all the nations informs his response. The way that he sees his ministry 
extending beyond the dividing lines that we might have or hold to. Jesus is not the word made flesh for the Jews alone, but for all nations. And his mission is not the salvation of one people, but the creation of this new society sharing in the life of God. That includes people from every tribe and tongue. So Jesus is unwilling to distance himself from the Samaritans because in him, they have a place. In him, they too receive the right to become the children of God. He's not willing to create that separation. But interpreters have also pointed to a more subtle reading of Jesus' non-answer in verse 49. Some have suggested that Jesus' willingness to let the identification of himself with the Samaritans stand points to a more specific identification. Not with all Samaritans, but with a particular Samaritan. That is, the good Samaritan of the parable told in Luke chapter 10. That parable is, of course, read first and foremost in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And answers the question of what true neighborliness looks like. But Jesus himself is the comprehensive icon of true neighborliness. And the Samaritan's ministry in that story as one despised and ostracized toward the man who's been beaten and bloodied, left for dead, is a lens through which we can understand Jesus' work and mission. It's a lens for us to understand the gospel. You and I, whatever our background, whatever our identity, are the one who is battered and bloodied left for dead by the powers of sin, evil, and death. And Jesus is the one who across dividing lines comes to us as his own. And at great risk, at great cost to himself, at great expense, procures our deliverance, our healing, grants us life and healing. He rescues us. This is what Jesus points to, in fact, in John chapter 3, when he says, those who might believe in me have eternal life, and I come not to condemn the world, but to save it, to rescue it. This lens of the Good Samaritan can help us understand Jesus' words about not glorifying himself in John 8 that follows our, the beginning of our text. Jesus emphasizes throughout this chapter, I'm not here for my own glory. And the point is, he comes not for himself, but for the sake of others. He comes for you and for me in our need and our weakness, in our broken and bloodied state. He comes to save. Jesus is our rescuer, our true neighbor, our deliverer, our good Samaritan. When we are alone and abandoned, he comes to minister, to bind us up, to move us to safety, away from the powers of evil, away from the consequence of our own sin. And I would encourage you, this lens, Jesus as the Good Samaritan, is a a way that you might consider Jesus' ongoing action and movement in your life. He is continually working for your healing, your salvation, in every situation, as trying, as difficult as it may be, in every circumstance. One of the questions you might have wondered in John 8 and even in the chapters before is why doesn't Jesus just walk away? Why does he continue to engage with this crowd despite their refusal, their inability to believe? And why does he continue to provoke and force the issue, right? Like, save your breath until they're willing to take up stones against him. Jesus does not give up. 
That is, as the good Samaritan, he does not give up on them. He does not give up on us. Rather, he continues to seek their salvation, our salvation, our healing, our deliverance. He persists in that. He remains committed. So we see Jesus is unwilling to distance himself from this ostracized community, the Samaritans. But he also does not give up on those who fling that prejudicial charge against him. He stays in with them. He stays with those who do not believe. This is remarkable. His goodness, his commitment to people is not shallow, is not superficial. His patience with you, with your family, with those who are far off extends. Such is his desire, his commitment for our freedom, for our salvation, our healing. And that is why we in turn cling to him because of his commitment to us, his desire for our rescue, because of his goodness. Okay, but how? How is it that we cling to him? The answer here brings us to our second heading, standing on guard. I don't expect y'all to have great familiarity with the Canadian national anthem, O Canada, but there's this line in that song that goes, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. It really gets the blood pumping. Can't you feel it? I imagine to Americans it sounds adorable, like you can, cute Canadians, never even had a revolution, so polite and meek, trying to sound fierce and protective. But for us Canadians, there is this idea that out of love for the country, out of allegiance to Canada, you stand vigil, you keep watch in some way. I don't actually know what we mean when we sing that, but like I said, it gets the blood pumping. This same idea of standing guard is captured in Jesus' words in our text about obeying his word. In verse 51, this is how we cling to him. The word translated obey in verse 51 is literally the word to keep. And it carries with it, sense, with it a sense of paying attention to something, orienting yourself around this thing. Elsewhere in John's gospel, the word is used in the context of observing or keeping the Sabbath. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew kind of connected word carries with it the sense of guarding something. Adam and Eve are invited to keep the garden in Genesis 2, keeping watch. Many of you have had experience with newborn babies. Think of the nighttime hours with an especially young infant, especially if you don't have a great deal of experience with babies. You attend in an all-encompassing way to that child. Are they sleeping? Are they making noise? Oh my goodness, are they breathing? The world shrinks to this room, to this child. They are the focus. They are the most important thing. And just as guarding something, watching over something of such value becomes this all-encompassing reality for the one keeping watch, Jesus suggests that being his follower, being his disciple, involves a lifestyle of observation and attentiveness to his word to what he teaches, to what he proclaims, to his descriptions of reality. His claims, his wisdom become magnetic north of our lives, the orienting point. This language, of course, connects with language that we've looked at earlier about remaining in Jesus' word, focusing, inhabiting his teaching. And it's the mark of being in him, of clinging to him, of being his disciples, his apprentice. One notable thing is that elsewhere in the gospel, in John 15, Jesus links the keeping of his word 
links belonging to him to the keeping of his apostles' word. In John 15, 20, he says to his disciples, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I'm not gonna camp out here because we don't have the time, but in making this connection, Jesus imparts to the word of his immediate apostles the same authority, the same primacy of place that his own words carry. There's no division in the words of Jesus from the words of John, Peter, or Paul. And our task as the followers of Jesus is the orienting of our lives around the word of Jesus and the apostles' teaching, as Acts 2 suggests. Orienting our lives around the word we receive from him and the word of those who followed him, whose words echo and point back to him. If you want to cling to Jesus as the one who is our good Samaritan, our true neighbor, then the keeping of his word is the central act of our lives. His reading of reality, his proclamation of good news over us, and yes, his ethical instruction. We cling to him by paying attention, observing, meditating, and doing, performing his word, by believing, hoping, obeying. And the remarkable thing here is that when you watch over a newborn, it's to keep them alive. But our attendance to the words of Jesus, in fact, brings us life. The word of Jesus produces life. It does not simply inform, but it performs. It creates life, eternal life. As we keep his word, as we cling to the one who is the word, we enter more fully into that life. The result of such a keeping watch is life indestructible. The one who obeys my word, Jesus says, will never see death. That is the same emphatic negation that we've seen previously, denying even the possibility, the potential of seeing death. The word of Jesus does not simply inform, but performs, it bears fruit, it creates everlasting life. We have recent examples of the way that words do not simply inform, but perform. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, is on trial for fraud because his word that the assets of FTX were sound when they were not produced action in the world. It performed that statement. Just this week, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's head of government, said, we are at war and 300,000 reservists were mobilized. His word performed. But where human words can perform, can have such an effect in the material world, Jesus' declaration, his promise is that his words affect change, affect life in a deeper and more profound way. That is what Jesus speaks to the powers and principalities. Unseen changes things. He stills and stops the lies of the enemy, the song of ruthlessness that we heard about in Isaiah 25. What he speaks over you and I has an effect. When Jesus says over you, mine, beloved, that has an effect. When he says over you and I who are not righteous, righteous, that changes things. There is deep and profound change in Jesus' words. It, his word changes things in a way that no one else's word can. William Temple, biblical scholar, former Archbishop of Canterbury, suggested that Jesus' promise here about not seeing death is that the one who will keep the word, who obeys the word of Jesus, will not notice death. That is, they will pass through physical death, 
just as Jesus did, but it is merely a step in the journey of life with God. Recognizing that physical death cannot hinder the abundant, indestructible life that Jesus' word produces. There was a remarkable movie a number of years ago called Wit that involves a reflection on the poem by John Donne, Death Be Not Proud. And in that movie, characters reflect on the final line, death, thou shalt die, and make a big deal of the fact that it goes death, comma, that in Christ, in the word of Jesus, death is just a breath, a comma, and that nothing hinders the everlasting life that Jesus brings. Because Jesus' words have such an effect, we cling to him, we hold to him as the one whose word, whose word alone brings the life we need. Why? Why is Jesus able to do this? Why does his word carry such life-giving potency? That brings us to our final heading, Across the Great Divide. In his book, The Experience of God, controversial theologian David Bentley Hart writes of a classical view of God that is shared by all the monotheistic faiths. He writes of it this way, speaking of God. He is not a being, at least not in the way that a tree, a shoemaker, or a God is a being. He's not one more object in the inventory of things that are, or any sort of discrete object at all. Rather, all things that exist receive their being continuously from him, who is the infinite wellspring of all that is, in whom, to use the language of the Christian scriptures, all things live and move and have their being. He is a remarkable writer. To summarize that, there exists this great canyon between the figure of God and every other thing in the universe a divide that separates the person of God, the creator, from the inventory of things that are creation itself. And the audacity then of what Jesus claims in verse 58, the boldness of the story that John is telling is that Jesus of Nazareth, this human being, stands astride this great canyon, in himself bridges this gap, existing as both creator and creature simultaneously, Without division, without separation, God and human together. And the full force of this claim comes out in the language that Jesus chooses. Before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, or I have been. The claim is more than just this uh, assertion of ancient age or pre-existence. The declaration, I am, would have rung in the ears of his hearers as connected to Moses and his experience at the burning bush in Exodus 3. There, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob named himself for Moses as I am, the God who is, the God who always is, who always will be, the God who is not contingent on any other thing, who stands outside creation, outside time, the ground by which things exist, the being by which all other things have their being. Now, obviously, this gets us into esoteric territory. For some of us, the territory seems totally disconnected from real life, from everyday experience. But what I want to emphasize for you is it is only by this bold, audacious, maddening claim that Jesus makes, only by it being true, 
that Jesus stands as able to deal with our most pressing problems, our problems of sin, death, and the devil. It's only by this reality that Jesus' words can bring life. His word performs and produces life and freedom because of the eternal divine life that he has. He has, just as Yahweh's word in the beginning spoke the universe into being, just as at Sinai, the living God gave the law to bring freedom. So now Jesus, this human person, the I am's word speaks eternal life into us, into his followers. He breaks the hold of sin and hell. He takes us into everlasting life because he has the means, the resources to do so. The word of any other human being, however wise, however learned, as knowledgeable as they may be, cannot do this. Human speech on its own does not produce the abundant life that Jesus promises, nor can any human being by their life and death lead us into the life of God for which we were made. You think of the Good Samaritan. They use their resources. They expend what they have in order that the person who is bloodied and beaten could be made whole, could be made well, could be rescued. Jesus' resources are eternal. They are sufficient for the deepest problems that you and I have. And our problems are deep, right? The, the hold that sin has on us is strong. Each week we confess because we recognize that reality. And the powers that work in the world are strong. I guarantee you, I'm not about to make a political point. But one of the things that we are seeing, one of the things that commentators have noticed with this spasm of horrific violence in Israel and Gaza is that the region seemed to be on the cusp of a new era of peace, that it seemed to be entering into some new phase for the, where the flourishing of people was more possible. And again, I'm not making any political comment here. But at its most basic, what we are seeing is the powers of hell and death reassert themselves to destroy the good purposes of peace, to obstruct God's good intention for the flourishing of Palestinians and Israelis. The powers of this world, make no mistake, are strong and do not give up easily. This is why then Jesus' claim, as audacious as it is, is absolutely essential for your life because it's only by his identity as one who is fully God, the great I am, that he's able to do the things that we are desperate for him to do. It's only by his identity as God from God that he has the resources to rescue, to deliver, to make us whole and new, to break the powers of sin and hell and death, to give us life and freedom. So yes, let us cling to Jesus who has stepped across this great divide to rescue and deliver us, who straddles this great gulch between creation and creature, between creator and creation, that we might become his own. Let us keep and obey his word. Is the word spoken to bring us life, speaking eternal, abundant life into us. And let us, as Jesus implores, rejoice with Abraham, who looked forward to this day, the day in which we live with laughter, with anticipation, with explosive delight, expecting the nations to be blessed and brought in. Because in Jesus, you daughters, you sons 
are being brought into glory, into the very life and freedom of God by Jesus, our good Samaritan, the one whose word brings life and who before Abraham was, is. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand in awe at the vision that your words unfold for us. This confounding, difficult idea that you are the one who creates, sustains, and now redeems all things. That in the beginning, you were there. That before the beginning, you were there. That you now reign as the great I am. We praise you for the ways that in that vision, we have hope because of who you are and your character that you've drawn near, that you don't give up on us, that you are our true neighbor, our good shepherd, our good Samaritan. And we ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen us, build us up in faith, that we might cling to you. You have the words of life. You are the bread of life. In you, we have our hope. Draw near to us and strengthen us to draw near to you. We ask this in your strong name. Amen.